Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast Heal or Heal Yourself, Reduce Burnout, Discover Your Creativity While You Heal Others. I'm your host, Dr. Isla Bates. I'm an integrative and holistic psychiatrist based in New York. I bring to you a podcast where I interview artists, physicians, and others who have used art in some way to heal themselves. So Dr. Jane Phelps and I had a really long conversation about our creative lives and this is a fascinating discussion where Dr. Phelps talks about her early education in engineering and art and studying in London and then moving into medical school and her creative endeavors continue. What you won't hear in this episode is our post-podcast conversation where she showed me several garments that she had actually sewn and constructed. She makes her own clothes, she quilts, and she paints beautifully. A lot of her work is influenced by the landscape which surrounds her home in Spokane, Washington. I hope you'll enjoy this interview with Dr. Jane Phelps, who's a child psychiatrist and absolutely loves her work and her job and has multiple creative pursuits. So enjoy the show. Thank you so much. Okay, here we go. We're going to begin recording. Um, Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Dr. Isla Bates. I'm a psychiatrist and artist, and today I have with me Dr. Jane Phelps, and we're just going to have a conversation today about creativity. Um, Dr. Jane and I met uh, at the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Art Committee meeting, Um, where I am co-chair, and we had a conversation about children's books, and and I just realized that you're a very creative person, and so I wanted to talk to you more and find out more about your creative life. Um, But first, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, um, how you became a physician, and, um, and then we'll go into the conversation about creativity. Oh, wow. Well, that may take a bit to explain. Um, I'm, well, Dr. Jane Felsheng, and um, I'm born in Taiwan initially, and currently I'm working as a child psychiatrist, and that's actually, it's not just work, it's my identity. I'm a child psychiatrist for a partial hospitalization program uh, here in Spokane, Washington, and I absolutely love my job in, in, in my thing. My thinking is it's just like the ideal job. This is great. I had so much fun. And um, I also get a lot of personal satisfaction out of it. Um, as for how I ended up being a physician, it's a bit of a story. I moved to the, to the States, Baltimore, Maryland, when I was 12. And at that time, I thought, well, yeah, both my parents are engineers. And I thought, of course, I'll be an Asian engineer. Like, that's, that's the thing, right? 
went to uh, finish high school, went to college in the, in the New England area and um, got in, started out majoring in engineering and studio art just because I'm very, very interested in art. And that's something that I, it's always been a part of my life for a long time. And about halfway through sophomore year, I realized that I'm not like the rest of engineers. Like I'm not that excited about building robots and so forth and so on. I'm, I, I can be very good at it, but doesn't mean that I, I get a personal satisfaction out of it. Mm -hmm. So I went through my rebellion period and dropped engineering, much to my parents' dismay, mm -hmm. and went into art history. Wow. Lived in New York for a while. Yeah, worked at Museum of Modern Art, uh, actually worked at the Smithsonian right after college, got a master's degree in British contemporary art over in London, and then um, realized that I didn't really fit into the art the commercial side or the collection side of the art world either. Um, and then Katrina happened. My parents in the meantime had moved to Indiana, Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. And I did volunteering for the Red Cross and realized that I I'm like, oh, wow, I really, really enjoy working with people directly. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, it sounds a little bit cliche, but I really enjoy helping people. Yeah. Um, when people are in distress, which Katrina was was uh, was definitely a tough disaster for anyone to have lived through. Um, and I thought, wow, if I want to do this, I need skills. I need to have something to contribute. And um, and I didn't really think about medicine for a long while. And then came back and, and thought, you know, that thing, science, like that was kind of fun by the biology, more fun than the engineering side. And so I dipped my toes in it and did some EMT work first, uh, trained as an EMT, did some EMT work, and then got trained as a paramedic. And, um, and then um, my, and I was also applying for post-bac pre-med programs at the time where post-bac pre-med programs are these programs around the country where you can do all of your pre-meds yeah. in one um, so um, my backup plan was to do paramedic, go through nursing and so forth and so on. Um, but I, I did get into a post bac pre-med program that put me back in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. I went to Goucher um, for post bac pre-med and mm -hmm. then that's, that's my career change. I went from there into medical school over in Pittsburgh and I stayed in Pittsburgh for residency at Western Psychiatric Institute and Clinic and stay there for fellowship. So looking back, wow, I mean, I lived for the most amount of time in Pittsburgh um, until I moved to Spokane. Wow. So you moved to Spokane for work, mainly. Uh -huh. Yes. Uh, you know, it was, people are like, it's Spokane. That's kind of an interesting choice. Um, the, there's, a college, there's a friend who graduated a year ahead of us who came out here for the academic um, for the for the academic job, and he was the first child psychiatrist hired by the psychiatric residency here. And just out of the blue, I texted him like, "Oh, how's your job out there?" I'm just trying to, you know, we're husband and I are thinking about the Pacific Northwest. He's like, "Oh, funny you ask. We're looking for another child psychiatry faculty." And I'm just like, "Wow." So, what would the actual position entail? And he said, "Well, be a would be a partial hospitalization program." And I'm like, "Really?" Yeah. Um, that's like, that's what I wanted to do. Perfect. So I thought I wouldn't end up running a partial until 
you know, years after graduation, because that yeah. was the trajectory that this just, this just came up. Yeah. Yeah. The partial programs are great because it's usually nine to three, which, you know, coincides with the uh, school, right? So mm -hmm. if you're lucky, <laughs> you can get out by three or four. <laughs> That's if you're lucky. Um, but it sounds like it's very yes, rewarding. Yes. <laughs> it's yeah. incredibly rewarding. And, um, and our partial, because we're for littles, we actually run from eight to one. Oh, nice. And um, yeah, so, so I'm able to do some, certainly the teaching bit with the residents in the afternoon, as well as um, just because the need is so high here, we also, uh, the residencies also contract to do, to do some consultation at the local juvenile detention mm -hmm. facility when they need a psychiatric consultation. Mm -hmm. And um, and then we're work. I'm, I'm certainly hoping to create a transition clinic. So I have a little panel um, mm -hmm. of transition patients who who still need more help after a partial program before going back to straight to uh, like a primary care doctor managing medications. Yeah. We just don't have enough access. Yeah, sure. That makes a lot of sense. Now you, I was surprised to learn just now the amount of art that you have in your background, which I think is really yeah. amazing. How I did you, a lot. Yeah, you did. So how do you think that that has um, changed you uh, in terms of being a physician or influenced your work or any anything at all related? Uh, hugely. I well, mean, I mean, being Having had a creative background, it's a stance. I mean, as you know, it's it's kind of a stance about the world where um, I think a lot about how, especially in our history, how everything influences one another. Mm -hmm. And um, and from a our history perspective, when I was analyzing artworks, I, I look at a piece of artwork. I I kind of make my uh, hypothesis. And then I look into a bit of their history that people might already have had. I listen to the artists talking, talking about their work. Um, and then I look at this kind of the socioeconomic, everything else is surrounding the artists that's kind of ended up being the creation of this artwork. And uh, we actually send the artwork off to the lab, right? And get some historical data <laughs> out of and then we have our theory as to, you know, surrounding the artwork, how is it, and how does it impact us now? Um, right. And think about that process. It's psychiatry. Absolutely. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I mean we, we talk, I, I, I learn about their story and, um, and whatever, you know, I'm a physician, which means that they, typically people come to us with some kind of struggle and we try to figure out what are the pieces which are involved socioeconomically, historically, politically. And we make sure they're not, we're not wrong by sending off them off to a lab and we get some blood work, make sure there isn't other medical piece that's contributing. Right. And we come up with a- Yeah, so, so you see it correlating. Do you think that, um, being an artist or actually really looking at art and dissecting it in many ways. Um, 
Do you think that that's made you a better observer of people? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, it's, I guess as an art person, I would say that it's incredibly second nature mm -hmm. just to look, to look at the details, look at the full picture and being really comfortable transitioning between these two elements, right? There yeah. is, and being comfortable with ambiguity. Exactly. Of, we don't know everything. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. Which is not, I, if, if I may venture to say, it's not always the natural stance of somebody who is completely rooted in science, which uh, some, most of the time people think of medicine as this concrete thing. Right. And I would say psychiatry is different in that there's a lot of ambiguity. There isn't a blood test that I'm sending off and say, or a brain imaging and say, aha, I know what this is. Mm -hmm. And have brain imaging and I see like difficulty with functional connectivity with the frontal lobe and, and the limbic system it doesn't tell me about the content of what people are thinking or the experiences they've had mm -hmm. so I mean I think it's poignant in psychiatry that we, we stand in such a position though I would venture to say that this really extends out to all fields of medicine. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. More prominent than others, mm -hmm. though it's there. So, so I'm, I'm a really strong proponent of talking about these things with medical students yeah. and, and, and opening up the perspective that being a keen observer, not just of the disease process, but being a keen observer of, of human nature mm -hmm. is part of what physicians. Right. Yeah, no, that's so important. Um, I love what you say about, you know, just being comfortable with ambiguity because as a physician, you really need to get comfortable with that. And you don't have all the answers all of the time. But it's really important to be a great observer and to put the story or the pieces together. Um, you know, when you're staring at a blank canvas or a blank piece of paper, you have an, an image of, in your mind of what you think it's going to look like in the end when you actually paint it or draw it. But it never turns out exactly that way. <laughs> Right? I no, mean, it never <laughs> and so as an artist staring at a blank canvas or a blank page, you become very comfortable with the unknown and the unpredictability of things as well. Yeah. yeah. And as an artist, um, I would say the artworks that I've done are incredibly process oriented. So I spend um, a lot of time drawing. Um, and what I described as abstract charcoal, wet charcoal work, which, yeah. um, which has a way of like, you can't control water on the page. Okay? Okay. Yeah. These, these, they have a life of its own. And for me, when I, when I make art and I, and I still do, it's about the process itself. So I start somewhere and I have this sense of 
that's kind of where I am with the artwork in the moment. Yeah. And the next thing I'm like, oh, well, this sheet of paper or this, this, this moment, it's like this dialogue, it's trying to do this thing. Yeah. And I may or may not be comfortable with it, but I kind of go with it. And, and it's, it's a very, for me, art is a very process oriented. Yeah. And, um, and that's a bit of how I see my interactions with my patients as well, that it's incredibly processed. Absolutely. And you use the word process um, oriented and I think, I think of it as intuitive as well. You know, it's Mm -hmm. an intuitive, it's a, it's a feeling that, you know, I need to go from this place to another place. (laughs) I know that sounds vague, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's, you are being guided in a way that is um, not necessarily pre-written. You know, it's not like you're painting by numbers. And so, you know, that number seven is, is Tiffany blue and number eight Mm -hmm. is baby blue. You are guided by this, you know, into an intuitive sense about what colors you might need for a particular area or what line, what type of line you might need in a drawing. Does that make sense to you as an artist? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think the piece that um, I try to remember is that in that process, it's for me as an artist and as a physician, it's about being comfortable with myself. Yeah, absolutely. And if I am anxious about where the next line is supposed to be, where the next color is supposed to be, it shows up in the artwork. Yeah. And there's something about it that's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I try to remember that when I'm spending time with a patient as well, because I have to be genuine in myself. And if I am uncomfortable with myself, I mean, forget about whether I'm uncomfortable with the patient, but just uncomfortable with myself in an interaction, then I can't, I can't have that, what, what I consider this authentic interaction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As a result, it actually muddies, I mean, it, it muddies the treatment, it muddies the diagnosis, it muddies, it, it, it muddies the work that, the, that we together are trying to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think what we're talking about is, um, <clears throat> is almost like an energy, uh, an energetic exchange, right? If you're really uncomfortable with yourself, Um, that's going to show in your work with the patient. But if you're really, I always say, if you're constricted and nervous and uptight, your drawings are going to be very constricted and tight as well. That art in a way is a full body experience where one has to be relaxed in order to Mm -hmm. produce something that um, conveys that feeling. Right, right. So I know that a lot of this sounds abstract. Yeah. <laughs> it may sound abstract to other people, but <laughs> it really makes sense, at least to me. And if if we are in a space that's really, really tough and tight, and in artworks, right, and that's and that's the piece that's coming through, then then in the end, it's a question of 
how come is it happening right now? Why is it happening? And uh, not in a judgmental type of way. It's just, yeah. it's a question and curiosity type of way, which is, try, is, is a similar spirit that I try to bring into my clinical interactions as well, where mm -hmm. if something is going on, I try to name it. Hey, this feels really uncomfortable right now. Yeah. Help me out. What do you think about this? Like, is it uncomfortable because something that we're saying, word that's said, not said? It's really vague, I know. <laughs> no, no, it's true. And that, that word of judgment is really important because um, the correlation between, uh, you know, prejudging a patient when they walk into a room and making judgments about them based on the way they look externally um, can really inhibit uh, that exchange or interaction, right? And when we look at a piece of um, our own artwork that we may have produced and we have judgments about it, it's not good enough, uh, it doesn't look as good as his, when we start comparing, that inhibits yeah. us creatively as well, mm -hmm. you know? And so letting go of this judgment, both mm -hmm. socially and artistically, you know, in art, you can practice letting go of that judgment. And that's how you can use mm -hmm. art to better yourself in terms of your social interaction. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And being forgiving, like, yeah, you know, we make mistakes. Absolutely. And it, it's not, the focus isn't on, oh gosh, I made a mistake and now I'm stuck in this concept of making a mistake. For me, it's the process of moving on, saying, I acknowledge that I made a mistake. Right. What do I want things to be different? Right, right. And art helps you to be comfortable with mistakes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and ambiguity. So much ambiguity, which is awesome and great. Yeah. We live in the great. Yeah. So I always ask, um, you know, what's your definition of creativity? Do you have one? Is there a word that comes to mind for you? Not specifically. I mean, like instinctively, I immediately think like authenticity. Because I yeah. really do think that being creative is a bit of a natural human stance and mm -hmm. I think all of us have the capability to be creative because yeah. if you think of really disinhibited two-year-olds and you give them a pile of paint and they're just in there like they're really enjoying the moment and this is awesome and I do think that there's something about the process of the development and growing up today that sometimes takes away those edges of like just pure joy yeah. and try to send us through a prescribed well educational system let's say and yeah. and and not that they're not important they're incredibly important to for people to be a part of society to to have this sense that we're we're part of a whole there right. is this balance between the two yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was just having a conversation yesterday with um, Jacob Nordby, who wrote the book, The Creative Cure. And we were talking about, you know, the left and right brain and how much value is placed on mathematics and science and so on, and less so on the arts. Um, 
but there's value in both and and we oh. need to you know we need to have yeah. that balance um yeah 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 it's just harder to teach right in a way it's, it's like it's not something you teach it's something you cultivate right and uh, and it's not a clear again it's process oriented right? yeah so there's no math right it's it's the process of going through it yeah so i am um well i started this community on facebook and one in clubhouse as well around creativity for physicians and healers um, because community is so important and having a place where people can get together and experience art together or create together, I think is super important. Do you have a community or do you um, just practice on your own? Oh gosh, I have a lot of social anxiety. I will let you know that. Okay. And um, surrounding my artwork. Really? And um, oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, we can talk about that. <laughs> and um, a lot of it's easier for me if the things I do in art is primarily for me. Because mm -hmm. it, for me, it's not muddied by honestly, my social anxiety of what other people think about it. The judgment. Oh, yeah, the judgment. Yeah, interesting. Which, I mean, certainly probably comes from the fact that like, I majored in art history, which is an entire field about criticism and judgment. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's interesting because someone once told me, you know, that art is something to be shared and uh -huh. to share with other people and not to keep it to, to myself. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I have to think about, I had to think about that a lot. And um, I remember the very first open studio that I did wow. and where, you know, it, it took a while to get all my artwork framed and on display mm -hmm. and then have the community come in and look at it. it was kind of scary right right um but when i did that what i found out was um that art could actually move people emotionally that there were people who were who would look at the art and be emotionally moved by it some of it you know and that was powerful for me because i realized that in sharing the work um, that I was actually connecting with other people, you know, mm -hmm. and it wasn't, it, it became less important as to whether or not people thought it was good. I mean, it's nice. Mm -hmm. to have people say, oh, that's, you know, that's really great. Or I love the colors. Um, sure. Yeah. But um, so there is some discovery in that, in that piece as well, in, in letting go of what other people think. Mm -hmm. and and sharing it can be a mm -hmm. very very powerful thing not only for you as the artist but also the observer mm -hmm. so I encourage you <laughs> I encourage you to just share it either in community with other like-minded people 
or um, just or in a show, an open studio, or you know, enter a juried show or something like that. Not for the mm -hmm. ego, but really um, because it could be meaningful for someone else. It's a way of sharing and serving. Yeah, it's. I guess for me, it's often that you know I share it. People know that I do artworks like these or my artworks in general when they're my friends. Yeah. And, um, and I, and people would say, oh, that's lovely. You know, we would really, you know, can I buy it off of you? And, and, and I do a lot of gifting of my artwork. So tell um, me about your art. Like, what's it like? I want to know, like, what, what do you yeah. like doing? And well, these days, recently, since moving to Spokane, I've done a lot of landscapes. Yeah. Um, just because landscapes here with the pine trees it's just lovely and the sky is different every day mm -hmm. so um that's been a bit more like pastel traditional a little bit what i consider traditional but in some ways mm -hmm. probably not like not oil painting um and the other half is um i do abstract work i when i do abstract like big abstract oh. pastel work um if, with you know wet pastel wet um wet and dry and so uh -huh. forth and so on so um that's where oh in terms of works on paper that's yeah. where i am yeah um i do i picked up quilting since covid oh i love that yeah <laughs> i and, love that uh, and the, I mean, a sewing machine, Bernina's sewing machine was like my panic. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I literally was like, oh my gosh, I need a sewing machine because I need to make masks. So I went out yeah. and, you know, panicked by the sewing machine. And then from there, um, made a lot of quilts. Mm -hmm. um, I love last it. Year, I'm like, I might have made five or six quilts, which is a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. Do you have any like, nearby or do you have like photos? Um, you know, oh, yeah. Um, if you want to share your screen. Yeah, I would. I would have to wander through um, nothing immediately available. We can, I can, do it at, we can do it at the end. We can sure. do like a separate, you know, separate piece where you can actually show some of your work and share it. That would be so awesome. So I've always wanted a Bernina. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, I, I I bought a um lower grade Bernina. It's, this That's is okay. not this That's is like okay. it's the it's a Bernina. It's a Bernina. I was a Bernina like, nonetheless. Yes. So um so, that, so, but, so just yeah. so that our audience knows what's a Bernina and why is it oh. so good. <laughs> Bernina is a, if I think it's a Swiss design, if I recall correctly, right? Swiss or German, um, I can't remember. Is it German? I, I, I'm like trying to remember. Um, sewing machine that is uh, incredibly well designed, um, like just like the Mercedes of sewing machines. Uh -huh. And they are smooth, they are well built. Um, I mean, there are vintage Berninas on like eBay that go for quite a bit of penny as well. So, I mean, like these are machines that are well built that I can, I know I can give it to the next generation. And uh, yeah. 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 
Yeah, I, I don't know if you know that I was a fashion designer, right? So, um, yeah, so you know, cutting, sewing, you know, you want the best oh. kind of equipment. And mm -hmm. uh, that's why I can get excited about a Bernina and quilting. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that, that, and you'll, you'll laugh at this, I will, I will share with you. My um, stress by these days are fabric. So I just like, I have a studio full of just like boxes of fabric for projects that one day I will make. Awesome. Um, <laughs> that is so fantastic. I love it. I love it. I love that you uh, have a studio and that you're actually, you know, creating art at the same time. Yeah, that's so exciting. Wonderful. It's great. Mm -hmm. And it's, and I'm also just lucky that I'm in a profession where I can, in a sense, like support some of my habits. Yeah, for sure. And not only that, I don't know if you, I mean, you're a child psychiatrist, as am I, and oftentimes I use art with patients, you yes. know, and mm -hmm. it's a great way to connect with them, especially mm -hmm. kids. I mean, kids are natural artists. They are comfortable with it right? Mm -hmm. They know how to play. And, um, and so it's really great if you have an art background and you can share some of these things. So how do you use art with kids? How do you use art with kids or do you in your work as a child psychiatrist? Well, I do a lot of blackboard and whiteboard drawings with kiddos when we do, you know, conversations together. Yeah. Um, kiddos who are, um, you know, hesitant to talk about their feelings. I asked them to draw their feelings. Mm -hmm. And and I join, I mean, because it's partial, we have groups. So I join in with them on some of the, the kind of art-based groups. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's a new wave in case you didn't know, crochet is very big right now oh. with the with age kids. So I, I have so it. many little boys who are telling me that like I am crocheting a scarf and, um, actually before I got into sewing I was into knitting and uh, so yeah. I knitted a lot so that was something you did that, too yeah oh yeah yeah I, I knitted I ended up with a trigger finger and had to move on to to, to something else <laughs> that's amazing I love it I love knitting too I love it yeah yeah the fabric feel there is something about very historical about knitting and sewing when it comes to like female craft from that perspective right yeah and there's something very historical about it and there's just something I don't know there's just something there for me yeah and quilting too there's a long tradition of women in quilting and um you know the quilts of the end oh say that again the like g-band g-band yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I actually did a series of portraits of the women of G-Ben because, yeah, because I felt like their quilts were getting so much attention, but they weren't as individuals. And, and these women were amazing and powerful and had very strong, you know, features and faces. And so I did a, about I know, four or five portraits of some of the women of G-Ben. Yeah, love it. yeah. Um, so I love I love the work that they do. The quilts are mm -hmm. beautiful, magical. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
So yeah, I have a great appreciation for, for all forms of art. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so tell me uh, where you see yourself, you know, five years from now in terms of your creativity. Do you have goals for writing or creating or some other art form? Oh gosh. I don't actually, this is just something I, I do. Mm -hmm. And so it's, I take it a step at a time. I take it what it feels comfortable for me. Someone mm -hmm. pointed out that like making art is actually very meditative, which I yeah. haven't really thought about. I say that um, all the time. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a meditative and, process. Uh, Absolutely. It, it is a meditative process. Mm -hmm. And so while I don't officially meditate, um, it's, I do think it is something that I need to keep myself sane. Mm -hmm. And from that perspective, it's not so much of a goal. I mean, like a goal for myself would be like, oh, I should be, you know, doing one drawing a day. That is something that I think to myself like that, that like, I want, to, I want to assign myself one drawing a day. Back mm -hmm. when I was in college, when I was an art major um, and I was doing my, my art thesis, um, I was creating 70, 80 drawings a week. Yeah. And, it, and, and it's just like therapy where when you increase the frequency, something happens within that and, and it shifts. Yeah. And, think that's the same thing with creativity and art making that it's about just a number of hours that you have doing the process and something about it shifts yeah I can't predict where to go though it's it's about the comfort and trust that it's going somewhere where it's helping me being more authentic shall we say yeah so it's just um having a natural course about it uh I um I used to do printmaking, you know, one evening a week. Um, do you have any kind of schedule, or do you just do it when the feeling comes? Well, I do it when my seven-year-old and five-year-old are asleep, and um, mm -hmm. and so when I actually have time, mm -hmm. and um. And I'm off on Fridays, luckily. So yeah. I'm able to get some things in on a Friday when you're at school. Though <laughs> otherwise, not a, not a strict schedule. Though yeah. it probably would help in my life in general. Though I'm pretty sure my inattentive and in, inattentiveness and impulsivity kind of hinders that a bit. I, I recognize that in myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's true for most creative people. <laughs> We're not, we're not those people who are really rigid and structured. No. <laughs> typically, not typically, no. <laughs> yes, and you have to be forgiving as well because, you know, none of us stick to a schedule per se. I don't. <laughs> so is there anything else? Um, we talked about children's books. I know when we were uh, in the art committee, what are you doing with children's books? Any thoughts about those or writing any? or reading oh, oh so yeah so I myself don't write children's books I am a great consumer of children's books mm -hmm. and um 
that I have um, a lot of respect for people who write children's books and who pr produce children's books. And um, and it's, it's this is my side child psychiatry project that um, I really want children's books to be a more active part of people's family life and using it as a, as a media where parents are, or caregivers are able to talk to their kids about the tough things in the world, emotions, well, not just even in the world and in, in, in themselves. So I'll talk about emotions and thinking conscientiously about the process of emotional and social development yeah. and looking at children's books as a way to enter into these conversations mm -hmm. all too often you know we think about reading books to our kids we read it we don't always talk about it and mm -hmm. and I think there is a great opportunity there for us to talk about the books absolutely questions such such as you know um with my kid like hey Sean if you were this character mm -hmm what would you be feeling or would you have reacted the same way? Mm -hmm. And, um, and sometimes kids have really surprising answers. Um, yeah. they often have really surprising yeah. answers. <laughs> oh, okay. And kind of go, is that what you think? And, and, and go from there a, a bit of a, I think of it as a bit of a Socratic back and forth yeah. and kids are able to do it. There's they an are. entire about, um, doing philosophy with children. And kind of my thoughts about this are very similar in that. When I was growing up, my mom um, actually was really interested in philosophy. So took me to children's philosophy groups um, okay. using children's books as a way to talk about philosophy. Okay. And, and I think society, we should be doing that. Mm -hmm. In addition to the fact that so much of what we see communications these days, advertisements, um, social media, it's a visual form of communication that we're not really teaching kids about. I mean, all of this goes into unconscious bias. All of this goes into um, um, just, just communication of how we're influenced. And, and if we're not bringing the unconscious up to the conscious, then we're doing a disservice to our kids. Yeah, and as they get older, it's so much harder to control the social media and the media that they consume. And it's so surprising. You know, I look at commercials and I think about how much influence they have on our, our subconscious. Oh, so much. You know? So much. Yeah. 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 yeah and I of course, that there are reasons why corporations are pay, paying gobs of money to do the advertisements because they work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just even thinking about that, if we don't become more conscientious, conscientious consumers and, and try to figure out what are, what are the things that, what are the messages that's actually being imparted, not just the actual message, but what's the next layer down of messages um, we're letting ourselves be influenced in ways that we don't even realize. I mean, I'm yeah. thinking about advertisements um, from the 80s about, you know, all of the anti-smoking campaign that's actually funded by big cigarette corporations, where if you actually analyze it, while they're saying the actual text says don't smoke, 
everything around it is actually promoting smoking. It's, uh, you know, it's, it, it's really interesting um, how much of that is happening and we have very little control over it. You know, if you watch TV, if you're on social media. Or read newspapers. Or yeah. read the newspaper, you're being influenced. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and when, and I get angry about it. I actually kind of do. Like I, yeah. I read the news and I'm in, and I look at the photographs and as a, um, as a visual person, I'm like, there is a message here that's not in your written article, but there is a message here. Mm-hmm. And this message is not appropriate. Like for example, very recently, there was uh, a news article about um, a really unfortunate uh, woman who was attacked and murdered. And, and they had just photographs of you know, the woman and the perpetrators and and like description of kind of just a news article of the event so so there was this article um of the of the actual horrendous crime that had happened yeah well not so much in graphic detail just like description like there was a crime this woman was attacked and and she was harmed and these are these are the suspects and and you named the suspects and and this is a woman and they just had photographs of suspect and the victim up and what's so striking is that the suspects are two black male I mean like you're asking me to describe and the the victim is a white female mm-hmm. and, and in my head I'm like that what what the victims or the suspect look like mm-hmm. does so yeah, wait, we wait. were we were talking about um, creativity, and uh-huh. um, your definition was surrounded by the word authenticity and mm-hmm. the fact that if we're authentic, that um, that's where we can be our creative best, <laughs> right? Um, and um, you you have some work that you want to share with us, so I'd love to see whatever you have. Yeah. So I spoke of these days, I've been doing a bit more landscape, a little bit more abstract. Ooh, beautiful. I love the subtlety of, you know, the sky and the, the pinks and the blues and that's beautiful, very beautiful. I'm embarrassed to show you how messy my studio is right now because so many cloths all over the place. <laughs> um, studios are supposed to be messy. Um, just like, oh my gosh, there's so many pieces of cloths all over the place, but this is something I love that. that. So, yeah. Beautiful. And uh, (laughs) the colors are really lovely. So that's, that's, that's about it. That's the, that's the range of kind of the general range of things I work on. That's awesome. Well, please join our Facebook group. It's called Healer Heal Yourself. Reduce burnout, discover your creativity. And um, it's a place where you can post your art and share it with other, other docs and um, people who are interested in, you know, art. Yeah, it's a safe, it's a safe space. <laughs> Good to know. It's a, 
it's private too. So not everybody can be yeah. a part of it. So it would be lovely to see your work, you know, do you have social media? Do you have an Instagram or anything where people oh, can see more of your work? I, I know you told me I, that you were not comfortable. I'm pushing you so, a little. Mm -hmm. So I actually have zero social media presence. Okay. I know I'm one of those. Um, yeah. Like there's a part of me, I'm like, oh, I'm a child psychiatrist. I should get in the know about all these things. And at the same time, mm -hmm. just, I, there's just so much going on and so much, in, so many interesting things I can do like in the real world that <laughs> that's fine that's so fine. i'm sorry no 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 don't be sorry i'm glad that um that i was able to speak with you today mm -hmm. i'm so honored that you have shared your work with me and the audience my audience so thank you because i know that that is not something you're most comfortable with and it's been, it's just been, I'm so grateful to have this conversation with you and to learn so much about you um, and your creative side. So I thank you so much for sharing. Really Not at all. Thanks it. for the invitation. Absolutely. And maybe we can have another conversation, a follow-up conversation <laughs> <laughs> on some of the things that we spoke about. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much. And bye. Take everyone. Care. <laughs> bye. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Dr. Jane Phelps. Thank you so much for being a part of this audience. Please remember to leave a five star review if you really enjoyed it, got something out of it, and felt inspired. I hope you felt as inspired as I did in speaking with Dr. Phelps. Wishing you a wonderful week and I'll see you next time. Bye now.